Good morning, Four Corners Church. It is a blessing to come to you this morning again here from our uh, church building. And I hope that all of you are doing well during this time. I know that there is the temptation to be isolated, to be cut off from God's people. And one of the things that my wife Jennifer and I have really enjoyed during this time is uh, that's been a sustaining force for us is, and for our kids as well, is getting plugged in with our gospel community group. So let me just encourage you, if you're a member here, you've been a member for a while, or you're a new member, or even if you're just a visitor, you've been visiting for a short time right before all of this happened, let me just encourage you to take advantage of those gospel community groups. It is a joy every week to, to gather on, even if it's on a screen, to gather and to, to uh, hear each other discuss God's Word, to pray together, and just to be able to see each other's faces, the faces of of fellow believers, of God's people. So let me encourage you, if you've, if you've thought during, during this time that that's non-essential or it's not something really that, that you have time for, let me just encourage you to rethink that and to pray about how you can get plugged in. You can go to our website and determine which groups are, are there and, and you can reach out to those group leaders uh, to see when they're meeting virtually. Let me ask you at this time to go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Verses 13 to 15, that's the text that we are going to be into in today. Yes, we are uh, in a text. We are always in a text. We uh, desire here at Four Corners Church to have text-driven preaching. Uh, the first pillar of our vision as a church is building on exposition. And so we, we walk our way through books of the Bible. We've just recently come out of Genesis, and now we are in Romans. And so we find ourselves in the first chapter, verses 13 to 15. Last time, we began to enter into Paul's heart. He is writing this letter to the Christians in Rome, and he begins with a greeting. And we looked at that extensively, verses 1 to 7, the greeting of the letter. And then he proceeds to bear his heart in verses 8 to 15. So if you're trying to kind of get an idea, we've had a number of sermons now, trying to get an idea for where we are in this book. Verses 1 to 7 are introductory in nature. He greets his readers. And then verses 8 to 15, Paul bears his heart. He, he shows his readers what is in his heart. This is the heart behind the ministry. And that was the title last week, part one, and today, part two, the heart behind the ministry. Last week, in part one, we looked at verses 8 to 12, and we saw three expressions of his heart of love for his readers. So I just want to review those briefly. If you did not have an opportunity to go and listen to that sermon, verses 8 to 12, we saw these three expressions of Paul's heart. First, his gratitude. He thanks God for his readers, for their renowned faith. He says that their faith is renowned in the whole world. That is everywhere he's been preaching, that, that there, is a, there is news of there being believers in Rome and that they are, are sound believers. So he thanks God for them in front of them as he's writing his letter. And then we saw his prayers he assures them in the strongest possible way. Remember, he calls God as a witness, assuring them in the strongest possible way that he prays for them constantly. This has been an ongoing thing. Paul has been praying for his readers repeatedly and regularly over a long period of time. 
So his gratitude, his prayers. And then finally last week, we looked at his desire, his longing. He longs to visit them in order to strengthen them, but not just to give something to them, as we saw at the end of the sermon last week, but also to receive, to have mutual encouragement, as verse 12 says, mutual encouragement among them. That he would impart to them things and that he would, they would impart to him things so that they would all be built up in the faith. So that was last week, the heart behind the letter, part one. Today, in part two, we come to verses 13 to 15. And here, Paul expands upon his desire to be with the Christians. So if you're thinking about the structure, verse 13 to 15, verses 13 to 15, really build out from what we found in verses 11 and 12, his desire to be with these believers. And now he's elaborating on that desire. He's giving further explanation of that longing that we looked at last week. And the way that I think about these verses as I was studying through them this week and and, uh, really trying to wrap my head around what Paul is doing here, the way I think about these verses is that Paul is situating his laser beam ministry within his larger ministry. So in verses 8 to 12, we have the laser beam ministry. It's very intimate. It's very personal. It's pastoral in nature. It's very much focused. You read verses 8 to 12. It is very much focused on Paul's heart for these Believers. It is very much focused on these believers in particular. A laser beam from Paul's heart to their hearts. Whereas verses 13 to 15 are more apostolic in nature. Paul zooms out a little. When you come to verse 13 and go through, he he zooms out a little in order to consider how these readers fit into his larger ministry. So verses 8 to 12, a little more personal and intimate. Verses 13 to 15, he situates all of that personal language and that intimate connection within his larger ministry. And I think there's a a bit of an implication for us here, just as we see this relationship, and it's this. The mission is never eclipsed by the personal And what I mean by that is we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about how ministry is about people. And we saw last week how ministry very much needs to be from one heart to another. It needs to be personal and intimate in nature. But there's a danger there that we get lost in the personal, in in, in the weeds of the horizontal, that we forget the larger mission of God here and in the world. The personal is here located within the missional. The missional is not located within the personal. The personal is located or situated within the missional. Paul never loses sight of what his larger purpose, what his larger ministry is about. Wherever he may be, whether he is writing very joyfully to believers in Philippi, or in a very frustrated way to believers in Galatia or Corinth, wherever he's ministering, to whomever he is ministering, Paul always has the larger mission of God, the larger ministry in view. It is simply greater 
than any one person or any one church or any one city or any one nation. So what do we have here? What do we have here in the heart behind the ministry part two? So here are our points. For those of you who are taking down notes, I know that this is a important, the skeletal structure. Here we go of the sermon for today, especially for the kids. I know we have our kids recall the sermon points, and sometimes it takes a little while for them to spell all of these words, but here we go. These are the two points for the sermon today. First, his prevented plans, and secondly, his evangelistic eagerness. So the heart behind the ministry, part two, his prevented plans, and his evangelistic eagerness. That's what we're going to spend our time digging into today. So if you would stand with me wherever you are for the reading of God's Word. We're going to come to God's Word with reverence. And that's the reason that we have a habit of standing, not that standing is required if we are to be reverent, just as praying does not require that we bow our heads and close our eyes. But it is a symbol with our bodies of what should be in our hearts, and that is our reverence now for the Word of God. This is the Word of the living God. When we open up our Bibles, when we hear preaching, God speaks to us through His Word. And so let's hear from the Lord today from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. I'm going to go ahead and read all of this section of Paul's heart for his readers. So let's read this. Romans 1, 8 to 15. This is the word of God. It is profitable and perfect. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And that was last week, and here we go for our text this week. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You can go ahead and be seated wherever you are and Let's go to God in prayer now. Let's ask that he would illuminate his word for us, that he would apply it to our hearts, that he would be glorified and that his people would be edified. That's a a simple prayer I pray uh, before I get out of the car when I arrive at the church building any Sunday morning. Very simple. It's always the same, that God would be glorified and that his people would be edified. And that's what we even see here with with Paul's ministry as he's explaining. And so that's our prayer for today is that through the obedience of faith in the hearts of God's people, growing and flourishing, that the name of Christ would be lifted up. Lifted up in our homes, lifted up among us as we relate to each other as a church, and lifted up in our neighborhoods and throughout this city as we interact with people at work, at leisure, 
or wherever. So let's pray and ask for God's work in us and among us. Father, we are humbled as we come to your word. Our hearts are heavy with our own sin. Father, as we consider our own lives and our own hearts and our own love in light of what your word teaches, Lord, we are convicted of our sins and we just cry out to you as the publican cry out, have mercy on us, O God, for we are sinners. Father, we thank you that through Christ you pour out your mercy upon us abundantly. For those of us who are listening now, who are Christians, who are truly converted, who are born again, who have repented and believed, we recognize that you have changed our hearts, Father, and you have given us a new standing before your face, that now before the face of God, as we think about Cain, the beginning of Genesis, and he's, he's sent away from the face of God. We are reminded that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, that we live, abide always under the gaze of God's face. Father, we praise you that you know us in this way. You have chosen through Christ to know us intimately in this way and you have brought us into fellowship with you through Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we come this morning hearing from our Father, our Father in heaven who loves us. And God, we praise you that we, we never come to your word. We never face the reality of our sinfulness, our negligence, our, our doubt, our laziness, our lack of faithfulness. We never face that without recognizing that you love us, you have called us, and you will patiently see us through till the end. And so God, in our weakness, in our frailty, in our sinfulness, we come to our Father this day. We ask that you would minister to our hearts, that you would reshape us, remold us into the image of Christ through this preaching of your word. And God, that we would be new people, New people, more and more, every time we hear your word preached, every time we come underneath its power, that we would be that much more transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We expect these things, we pursue these things as we open up your scriptures. And so God, we ask now that you would do this work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, this morning, we come to his prevented Plans And for this, as we look to our text, look at the beginning of verse 13. So where am I getting this first point? His prevented plans. I'm getting it from the beginning of verse 13. So here's what it says. Here's what Paul says or writes to his Roman readers. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So here we are, back to 
reassurance. He begins verse 9 with the words, For God is my witness, as he reassures them of his prayers. So Paul, we're beginning to see a pattern in this section, right? He's, he's reassuring his readers. He has a desire to reassure their hearts. He did that at the beginning of verse 9. Look, I want to reassure you, God is my witness. He's calling the, the almighty God. We talked about this last week, the, the God whose ways are unsearchable, the God from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. This, this amazing God, he's calling him forward as a witness, and he's doing that to reassure his readers that his prayers are genuine and they are consistent. They are constant. We see the same thing here in verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware. Paul is attentive to and concerned with the thinking, the perspective of his readers. The impressions that have been made upon them. Paul does not want his readers to be in the dark or misinformed. He does not want them to have any wrong notion about where his heart is. Paul is very much concerned to put on display before his readers, to inform his readers of his motives. You know, this is very much in contrast to what we often hear. And I've heard this a lot in my life growing up in church, just from various people. And maybe you've said this yourself, language like this. I'm not going, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I don't really care what people think. I don't really care what people think about me. And we hear that kind of language, and there is some truth to that language because we know that fear of man is a real thing, right? We are afraid of what people may think about us. We, we sometimes find ourselves, much like the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount, living out our lives for the praise of other people living out our lives so that they will think well of us. And so this is a real danger. And and to combat that, we recognize that that, that we have the need to live before the eyes of God, quorum Deo, before the face of God. And that our objective should not be to be a man pleaser, but to be a God pleaser. So there is some truth to this idea that we often hear, I don't care what people think. I don't care what people think about me. But I want you to see that this kind of thinking, not understood properly, is not the way of love. This kind of disregard for the perspective, impressions, the the thinking and mindset of other people towards yourself as a believer is, is not the way of love. That's not what we see here with Paul. He could say, well, I don't care what the Romans think about me. I'm going to go and do my work there and what they think, they think. No, that's not Paul's attitude at all. He desperately wants to correct any misinformation among them, to make them aware of the truth regard to, with regard to his heart and his motives. So what does Paul want to reassure them about? Well, stated simply, the truthfulness of his desire. When someone says, I've really been wanting to come visit you, and they say that they've been wanting to come visit you for a long time, 
it raises the question, inevitably in our minds, then why haven't you? <laughs> you, you want to come visit me, and you've been wanting to come visit me for a long time. If this desire is bound up in your heart, then why is it that I haven't seen your face? Why is it that you haven't come to see me yet? And maybe some in Rome are asking that question, this sort of question. Why has Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, very much at the height of his expansion and its power, why has Paul, this great apostle to the Gentiles, not come to visit a largely Gentile church in the capital city of the empire? A church renowned for its faith all over the Mediterranean world. Why, after two decades, maybe a little more than two decades, has the apostle still not visited us? So you can imagine that's a very logical question, especially if Paul is saying, and he'll reiterate this in chapter 15, especially if Paul is saying, look, I've been for a long time, I've wanted to come to you, then why haven't you, Paul? And Paul anticipates this objection. And he responds first by addressing them intimately, notice this, as brothers, brothers and sisters, those who likewise belong to Christ and have God as their father. Notice what Paul is doing. It's similar to what he did back in verse 12. He, he didn't just say, look, I'm the apostle. I'm up here and I'm going to step on down the, the steps and I'm going to come down to you, uh, needy people, and I'm going to impart something to you and give something to you because you're the needy one and I'm the one who has it to give. Paul doesn't leave his readers there. In verse 12, he says, look, I want to come to you and I want to be mutually encouraged with you. And the same idea is packed into this word brothers. Because what it does is it puts Paul very much on the same level as these fellow believers. They are all, including Paul, united to Christ together. And they are all, they all share in having God as their father. So we see this posture of mutuality and this posture of humility that is very much a part of Paul's heart. And he says here that he has often intended to come to them. The word often connects back to his continual prayers. These believers have been on his mind consistently over the years. So Paul's been praying for them unceasingly and always, and he has often intended to come to them. So this word often reassures. It reiterates this desire. And the word intended is a strong verb that denotes planning and effort. This is more than a mere wish or a desire. Paul doesn't just tell his readers, I want to see you. I wish to see you. I've longed even, very strong word, I've longed to see you. He actually says here that I've purposed, I've planned, I've made effort, I've intended to come and see you. I've tried to come. I've expended effort. He has made, over the years, multiple plans to come to these Roman readers. But his plans 
up to this point have been prevented. His plans have been hindered. He has wanted to do it. He's purposed to do it. He's made effort to do it. He's made plans and, and, and he's set up things to do it, but it's just not worked out. Why? Well, Paul does not give the reason here in chapter 1, but he does later in chapter 15, verses 19 to 24. If you want to flip there and look at these verses, you can, but I'll read them to you here. This is the explanation that we really have to import into chapter 1 here to explain what is it that has hindered or prevented the apostle from going to these believers in Rome from fulfilling his desire, his longing to be present with them. Here's what he says. From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written... Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while." So what is Paul saying here? He has been preaching all over the Mediterranean world. No one reads the book of Acts. No one reads Paul's letters and thinks that Paul's just been sitting around. Just been sitting around, hanging out, taking lots of leisure. That's not why Paul has not visited the Christians in Rome. He has been ministering all over the eastern Mediterranean, preaching the gospel. He has pursued the unreached and intentionally avoided preaching to already established churches. And all of this ministry is what has stood in the way of him coming to Rome. So he explains to his readers, look, I don't want you to be unaware of this brother's I don't want you to be in the dark about this. I've wanted to come to you, not just in my heart, but I've tried, I've made efforts to come and see you, but I've been prevented. And later, because I've been elsewhere preaching the gospel and I've just been demanded there in that work. And I think we find a couple of major implications for ourselves here as we just stop for a moment and think about this first part of verse 13. So two implications for us this morning. First, good, godly desires may go unmet for a very long time. Do you see that? The Apostle Paul, two decades, good desire, go and minister to these believers in Rome, a godly desire, a good desire, unmet for a long time. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you've had some of these desires yourself. Desires that you believe that God has put into your heart. Desires that, as you think about them, have pure motives about them. 
Desires that would produce results in other people's lives, be for the good of others and the glory of God. So insofar as you've been able to analyze it, you recognize that these desires are pure insofar as we can have pure desires, and these desires are good. They're godly, but they have gone unmet. And maybe you're just stuck there and you're wondering why. You're frustrated even. Why have I been hindered from doing these things or being a part of these things or seeing these kinds of results from these good, godly desires? That's a very valid question. And I'm sure it's a question that Paul asked as he prayed for these Roman Christians. I think we are reminded here to focus on the work that God has given us now. God has put some work right in front of us. If, if Paul would have allowed these desires to be with the Roman Christians, to take over his life and take over his mind, he would not have been able to, to focus on people from Jer- Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. All these other people to whom he has ministered over these years, he, that would have eclipsed all of that work. His mind would have been elsewhere. He would have been thinking about what's next rather than what is right in front of his face. There is such a temptation, especially when we have desires that are unmet, to live there rather than here under the providence of God. So let's live in the now, but... Let's not let those desires go. Those desires, as we assess them, may be good and godly. Paul did not let go of these unmet desires to be with the Roman Christians. He patiently continued to pray as he was carrying out the other work that the Lord had put right in front of him. So there's an encouragement, I think, for us here. Not to lose focus of what's in front of us, but at the same time, to yes, Continually pray over those desires that God, we believe, has put into our hearts. That's the first implication that I think we see here. Secondly, it is important that the Roman Christians not lose sight of this larger mission. Now catch this. These Roman Christians are not the only Christians. They're they're not the only Christians, and they're not the most important Christians. And of course, I think maybe there's a temptation. I mean, these Christians are on the very, very, very front lines of contemporary pagan thought. Uh, They're living in the center of the Greco-Roman world, the renowned, beautiful, magnificent, ancient city of Rome. Of all people, to think that their city... Their neighbors, their ministry, their work is most important. Certainly here, that temptation would have been present. But they are not the only group of Christians. I think this reminds us that churches can become self-important and self-absorbed. Paul's reminding his readers, look, I've wanted to come to you, but you're not the only Christians. I've been ministering for years and decades among all these other believers. And so as we think about this here at Four Corners Church, may we not be a church filled with self-importance or self-absorption. 
absorption. Concerned only with ourselves. Seeing ourselves on an island out here in some way. So Paul opens up his heart and his life and reassures his readers of the credibility of his desires. That's what I've been trying to explain here is he's, he's filling out the credibility of his desires. He has often planned to come to them, but has been prevented until now. And this leads to our second point for this morning, and that is his evangelistic eagerness. So we've seen his prevented plans at the beginning of verse 13. Now, as we go through the rest of our text, we see his evangelistic eagerness. So look at the latter part of verse 13. Here's what it says. In order that, it says desire to come there, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. As we just read in chapter 15, Paul's desire is not to plant or establish the churches in Rome or the various house churches gathered in the city of Rome. This has already happened. Rome has had these churches for some time now. That's not his desire. His desire is to see them in passing as he goes to Spain. Do you see the way he talks to them? He doesn't speak to them as though he's going to come and sort everything out and make everything right. Kind of like he sends Titus there to Crete. And there's a lot of work to be done there. Paul doesn't take that approach here with the Roman Christians. He, he explains that he wants to come and spend time with them and then be sent from there on his missionary journey to Spain, further west. But his time among them will not be a time of mere chatting or mere catching up or sightseeing. Paul is a gospel man. It informs everything he does. Every intention of his heart is driven, pushed forward, fueled by the gospel. He's a gospel man, as we read in the very first verse of this letter. I mean, as it begins, the very first verse, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, what does he say? Set apart for the gospel of God. That's what drives this man's life. The gospel is his life. Wherever he goes, he is a gospel bearer. He is a herald of good news. He is a proclaimer of Jesus Christ and him crucified, as he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Paul is an eager evangelist. Evangelist comes from the Greek word for gospel. It's just one who is proclaiming and preaching the gospel. That is who Paul is. And so just as he has carried out gospel work among many other Gentiles in the, in the East, he will do the same in Rome. And it's very interesting here when you look at his language. When Paul describes his gospel ministry in these verses, notice this, he characterizes it in terms of two things. He uses two 
metaphors as he's carrying out his ministry. We've seen the more intimate uh, communication, and now we're seeing the larger apostolic communication. And as he is doing so, he uses two metaphors, two ways of describing his ministry. And here are the two words, fruit and debt. Fruit and debt. So we're going to look at each of those now for a moment. First, fruit. In verse 13, Paul speaks of reaping some harvest. And literally, the word is fruit. Some fruit. This, obviously, is an agricultural metaphor. We find many agricultural metaphors in the Bible. People living very close to the land, very close to the produce of the land for survival. Uh, For those of us today, these metaphors become a little more distant because many of us just go to the grocery store and get our food packaged up or we get it from a drive through or wherever we go. But these are people who very much are living close to the produce of the land for food, for human consumption. And so here we get this agricultural metaphor that his readers would have been able to quickly understand. It can be traced back to Jesus' words in John 15, verse 16. Here's what the Lord says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In other words, Jesus' call, we have to see this. Jesus' call is and has always been a call to fruitfulness. Jesus tells his earliest followers, I have chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Not to just sit around and be a Christian. Not to just sit around and absorb. Not to just sit around and receive and maintain, but to bear fruit. It's always been that way for those called By Jesus. We are not apostles. But we too belong to Christ. We've seen that already, right? Called to belong to Jesus Christ. We too belong to Christ. And therefore, we too are chosen to bear fruit. There should be the fruit. There should be the fruit of gospel advance from those who belong to Christ. Let me say it this way. As Christians, we should both pursue and expect gospel fruit to come forth from our lives. So let me just ask you this question. Are you just kind of on autopilot as a Christian? Well, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I've got identity in Christ, and and here I am, and God use me in any way you see fit, but I'm just going to kind of passively wait on God to do something in my life. That's not what is held out for us in the New Testament. What is held out for those who belong to Christ is a life of fruitfulness, one that pursues eagerly to be fruitful and expects that God will, in fact, bring fruit from our lives, 
from our ministries. And remember Ephesians 4, the the church equips the saints for the work of ministry. All of us has a ministry as Christians. And it is a ministry to, unto fruitfulness. But let me give a little caveat here to that. God governs the results. So often in churches, everything is about the results. So you have to tailor everything you do to get certain results. It's very man-centered. It's prideful. And it is in some ways unbelief in the power of God through his word that there's this, this kind of artificial gimmickry, this, this way that you have to sort of shape things and mold things so that you, you get these human results. We recognize from 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 7, that God alone brings the fruit, the results. I planted, Apollos watered, Paul says, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So on the one hand, only God can bring results. Only God can bring fruit. Only God gives the growth. But on the other hand, we should be constantly, eagerly pursuing this fruit and expecting that God will bring it. Maybe not in our own time, in our own way, Because we know we don't have God's wisdom. But in His way, in His timing, fruit will come. Maybe much unseen fruit. This fruit, as we've already seen in verses 11 and 12, would include the strengthening and encouragement of existing believers, the Roman Christians, but also the growth of the church through new converts. So this is, there's a discipleship element, and it's, it's, it's kind of strange even how we, we parse these two out from each other, the way we, we separate discipleship and evangelism, especially considering the fact that in the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, make disciples, so that uh, evangelism without disciple-making is not evangelism, and disciple-making without evangelism without the gospel is void of its power, void of its content. We see here that this fruit would have involved both the strengthening and encouraging of believers, but also the the bringing in of believers among those in Rome. Paul anticipates preaching the gospel to Roman unbelievers And it's really neat to read in Philippians chapter 1 because you get a sense for uh, what's going on there in Rome. Paul's actually imprisoned there in Rome. And here's what he says from prison as he writes to the Christians in Philippi. Philippians 1, 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Look at that. His, His very imprisonment is advancing the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. There's the the evangelistic thrust to unbelievers. Unbelievers all throughout Caesar's court, the imperial guard. They've come to know about Paul. And he says this, And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Christ is named among the imperial guard in Rome. And, and, 
Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So these evangelistic desires, this, this evangelistic eagerness to go to Rome involves both of these, that the brothers be built up in boldness, in confidence in the Lord, in their own evangelism among their neighbors, but also that more people would be added to the Roman Christians, to the Roman church. More would come to bow to Christ as Lord. So we see fruit. <clears throat> Secondly, we see debt. Debt. And this may strike you as a bit strange. Paul has fruit in mind, but also debt. As he describes his work here, he is a farmer and a debtor. A farmer and a debtor. He says in verse 14, I am under obligation, or literally, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. These two categories of Greeks and barbarians on the one hand, and the wise and the foolish on the other hand, are meant to be all-inclusive, all Gentiles, all kinds of Gentiles, whether in Rome or anywhere else. This is, a, a, this is inclusive language for the Gentile world, for the nations, the cultured and the uncultured, those steeped in Greco-Roman language and culture, and those considered barbarians, non-Greeks, historically, traditionally non-Greeks, those whose language to, to a Greek ear would sound like bar, 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 bar. Just barbarian peoples. The learned and the unlearned, those with intelligence and education and those without intelligence and education. To all kinds of people, the cultivated and cultured, the, the Cicero types, as well as the slaves who can't read or write, to all these Gentiles, Paul is a debtor. All are the object of Paul's gospel work. Just briefly, let's pause here for a moment and just look at two quick implications. First comes from a quote from John MacArthur. He says, the gospel is the great equalizer. Notice that. That in churches back then, you would have Someone like a Cicero, a great elite orator of the Roman world, a senator, next to, sitting next to, singing praises with, sharing in communion with a common slave. The beauty of the church, all these people, equalized, put on the same level by the gospel. No class structure. This is why James says, look, you do wickedly, you do evil when you show partiality in your gatherings. Because when the church of God is gathered and you show partiality to the cultural elites, to the businessmen in your community, to those who may be a bit famous, to those who are in office, when you do that, you are, you are 
stealing away from the truth of the gospel, that it is a great equalizer, that all people are the same before the eyes of God in Christ. A second quick implication on this is something John Calvin says. He says, all teachers have also a rule here which they are to follow. And that is modestly and kindly to accommodate themselves to the capacities of the ignorant and unlearned. Now, I'm sure that someone could hear this and think sermons should be 20 minutes and full of jokes and uh, filled with just basic statements without much content. I don't think that's what Calvin is saying at all. You can listen to, you can go and read his sermons and look at his commentary and you'll see that's not what Calvin is after. But clarity, clarity of expression, that the teachers within the church should not be those who who give academic lectures or give these philosophical discussions in the abstract that someone in the church who's uneducated would just not be able to understand at all. It's not about content and substance. It is about being heady, being merely academic rather than reaching the hearts of all people the most educated, the least educated. All people. But why? Why does Paul say that he is a debtor to these people? It's kind of strange language. You don't expect it. That he owes them something? I mean, what does he owe these people? We get a sense for what Paul is talking about when we look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 to 17. Here's what he says, For I preach the gospel, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Listen to this language. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. That's what lies behind Paul's language here. When he calls himself as a gospel worker, when he calls himself a debtor. As the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is under a God-given responsibility. He has been given a divine trust. He must, must preach to all the nations. And in this sense, he has an obligation to the nations. He is laid under an obligation to them to pass along what what he has been given to those who have not submitted to Christ as Lord. Wherever there is not a bowing to Christ, Paul has an obligation to impart to them the message of reconciliation, as we find in 2 Corinthians 5. I appreciate this quote from John Stott. Listen to what he says, reflecting on this. Similarly, we are debtors to the world, even though We are not apostles. If the gospel has come to us, which it has, we have no liberty. Listen to this, people of God. We have no liberty to keep it 
to ourselves. Nobody may claim a monopoly of the gospel. Good news is for sharing. We are under obligation to make it known to others. So, let's go back. Fruitfulness. Is that a category in your life? In your Christian living? A desire, an earnest desire to see fruit? Pray for fruit. Strive for fruit. Serve for fruit, for the glory of God and the good of other people, for the sake of Christ's name. But is this a category for you in your Christian living? Debt laid upon you, a necessity, a mustness laid upon you as a believer, as one who belongs to Christ. That you are under obligation as a recipient by the grace of God who has received the word of life. Not to just hold it tight to your own heart. Be absorbed with yourself and how self is doing. And what new Bible study self is involved in. What new book, what new idea, what new discipline self has. But fervor, eagerness. To make this gospel known. So to go back to our introduction. Yes, Paul deeply cares about these people and has them close to his heart. We've seen that, that close, intimate connection. But these personal sentiments are very much a part of his larger ministry. He is a farmer and a debtor, and he eagerly desires to have fruit and make payment in the capital city of Rome. So even in this introduction, I want you to see, we haven't even gotten, so to speak, to the content of Romans. <laughs> the, the, the theological argument, the discourse that, that Paul will introduce in verses 16 and 17, and then he launches into going from verse 18 to 32 about the sinfulness of man, and then of the Jews in chapter 2, and then all under this condemnation, all sinners, chapter 3, and then introducing in blazing glory the gospel of Christ in chapter 3, verses 21 and following, which we have on our wall. We haven't even got into his discourse on justification and all of these other doctrines yet. And I hope you see that even before we've gotten to any of that instructional content, that gospel teaching, that Paul is thoroughly, see this, Christian, Paul is thoroughly schooling us in evangelism. He is lighting a fire in our bones. For the advance of the gospel among all peoples for the glory of Christ's name. So I ask you, are your bones on fire? Pray, pray that the Holy Spirit would light the match in each of us and as a church. I know that's my prayer. For myself. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for that. Father, we come before you. We recognize 
the stewardship that has been given to us as those who belong to Jesus Christ. We are Christians by grace through faith. We are Christians not because of anything we have done, but because of your predestining, calling, regenerating, converting, setting us apart. God, you have been so merciful to us. Who are we? Who are we to hold this wonderful, life-saving, Christ-glorifying message to ourselves? God, we ask your forgiveness for our negligence in the debt that we owe to the world. We pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would strengthen us for this work. And God, as we move now into Paul's discourse in Romans about the gospel, would we not forget these opening words? Words that remind us what the gospel looks like on the ground. Not just a, a concept to be swirled around in our brains and discussed over coffee with massive tomes of theology before us, but, but something lived on the ground among those whom we call brothers and sisters and among those whom we call neighbors. God, we pray that you would light this fire in our bones by your grace, by the Spirit, each of us, and as a church, that we would long to see people come to faith in Christ for the sake of Jesus' name. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us first. We offer you this time in your word. We pray that you have used it and will use it for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.